Book Two, Part Four of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume One. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broadrib. Book Two, A.D. sixteen to nineteen, Part Four. While Germanicus was spending the summer in visits to several provinces, Drusus gained no little glory by sowing discord among the Germans and urging them to complete the destruction of the now broken power of Maroboduus. Among the Gotones was a youth of noble birth, Catualda by name, who had formerly been driven into exile by the might of Maroboduus, and who now, when the king's fortunes were declining, ventured on revenge. He entered the territory of the Marcomanni with a strong force, and having corruptly won over the nobles to join him, burst into the palace and into an adjacent fortress. There he found the long-accumulated plunder of the Suivi, and camp-followers and traders from our provinces, who had been attracted to an enemy's land, each from their various homes, first by the freedom of commerce, next by the desire of amassing wealth, finally by forgetfulness of their fatherland. Maroboduus, now utterly deserted, had no resource but in the mercy of Caesar. Having crossed the Danube, where it flows by the province of Noricum, he wrote to Tiberius, not like a fugitive or a suppliant, but as one who remembered his past greatness. When, as a most famous king in former days, he received invitations from many nations, he had still, he said, preferred the friendship of Rome. Caesar replied that he should have a safe and honourable home in Italy if he would remain there, or if his interests required something different, he might leave it under the same protection under which he had come. But in the Senate he maintained that Philip had not been so formidable to the Athenians, or Pyrrhus or Antiochus to the Roman people, as was Maroboduus. The speech is extant, and in it he magnifies the man's power, the ferocity of the tribes under his sway, his proximity to Italy as a foe, finally his own measures for his overthrow. The result was that Maroboduus was kept at Ravenna, where his possible return was a menace to the Suivi should they ever disdain obedience. But he never left Italy for eighteen years, living to old age and losing much of his renown through an excessive clinging to life. Catualda had a like downfall, and no better refuge. Driven out soon afterwards by the overwhelming strength of the Hermanduzi led by Vibilius, he was received and sent to Forum Julii, a colony of Narbonensian Gaul. The barbarians who followed the two kings, lest they might disturb the peace of the provinces by mingling with the population, were settled beyond the Danube, between the rivers Merus and Cusus, under a king, Vanius, of the nation of the Quadi. 
tidings having also arrived of artaxias being made king of armenia by germanicus the senate decreed that both he and drusus should enter the city with an ovation arches too were raised round the sides of the temple of mars the avenger with statues of the two caesars tiberius was the more delighted at having established peace by wise policy than if he had finished a war by battle and so next he planned a crafty scheme against rescuparis king of thrace that entire country had been in the possession of Remetelces, after whose death augustus assigned half to the king's brother rescuparis half to his son cotis in this division the cultivated lands the towns and what bordered on greek territories fell to cotis the wild and barbarous portion with enemies on its frontier to rescuparis the kings too themselves differed cotis having a gentle and kindly temper the other a fierce and ambitious spirit which could not brook a partner still at first they lived in a hollow friendship but soon rescuparis overstepped his bounds and appropriated to himself what had been given to cotis using force when he was resisted though somewhat timidly under augustus who having created both kingdoms would he feared avenge any contempt of his arrangement when however he heard of the change of emperor he let loose bands of freebooters and raised the fortresses as a provocation to war nothing made tiberius so uneasy as an apprehension of the disturbance of any settlement he commissioned a centurion to tell the kings not to decide their dispute by arms cotis at once dismissed the forces which he had prepared rescuparis with assumed modesty asked for a place of meeting where he said they might settle their differences by an interview there was little hesitation in fixing on a time a place finally on terms as every point was mutually conceded and accepted by the one out of good nature by the other with a treacherous intent rescuparis to ratify the treaty as he said further proposed a banquet and when their mirth had been prolonged far into the night and cotis amid the feasting and the wine was unsuspicious of danger he loaded him with chains though he appealed on perceiving the perfidy to the sacred character of a king to the gods of their common house and to the hospitable board having possessed himself of all thrace he wrote word to tiberius that a plot had been formed against him and that he had forestalled the plotter meanwhile under pretext of a war against the bastanian and scythian tribes he was strengthening himself with fresh forces of infantry and cavalry he received a conciliatory answer if there was no treachery in his conduct he could rely on his innocence but neither the emperor nor the senate would decide on the right or wrong of his cause without hearing it he was therefore to surrender cotis come in person and transfer from himself the odium of the charge this letter latinius pandus propraetor of mesia sent to thrace with soldiers to whose custody cotis was to be delivered rescuparis hesitating between fear and rage 
preferred to be charged with an accomplished rather than with an attempted crime. He ordered Cotes to be murdered, and falsely represented his death as self-inflicted. Still the emperor did not change the policy which he had once for all adopted. On the death of Pandus, whom Rescuperis accused of being his personal enemy, he appointed to the government of Mesia Pomponius Flaccus, a veteran soldier, specially because of his close intimacy with the king and his consequent ability to entrap him. Flaccus, on arriving in Thrace, induced the king by great promises, though he hesitated and thought of his guilty deeds, to enter the Roman lines. He then surrounded him with a strong force under pretense of showing him honour, and the tribunes and centurions, by counsel, by persuasion, and by a more undisguised captivity the further he went, brought him, aware at last of his desperate plight, to Rome. He was accused before the Senate by the wife of Cotis, and was condemned to be kept a prisoner far away from his kingdom. Thrace was divided between his son Remetalces, who, it was proved, had opposed his father's designs, and the sons of Cotis. As these were still minors, Trebellianus Rufus, an ex-praetor, was appointed to govern the kingdom in the meanwhile, after the precedent of our ancestors, who sent Marcus Lepidus into Egypt as guardian to Ptolemy's children. Rescuperus was removed to Alexandria, and there attempting, or falsely charged with attempting escape, was put to death. About the same time, Venones, who, as I have related, had been banished to Cilicia, endeavoured by bribing his guards to escape into Armenia, thence to Albania and Heniochia, and to his kinsman the king of Scythia. Quitting the sea-coast on the pretense of a hunting expedition, he struck into trackless forests, and was soon borne by his swift steed to the river Pyramus, the bridges over which had been broken down by the natives as soon as they heard of the king's escape nor was there a ford by which it could be crossed. And so, on the river's bank, he was put in chains by Vibius Fronto, an officer of cavalry, and then Remius, an enrolled pensioner, who had previously been entrusted with the king's custody, in pretended rage pierced him with his sword. Hence there was more ground for believing that the man, conscious of guilty complicity and fearing accusation, had slain Venones. Germanicus, meanwhile, as he was returning from Egypt, found that all his directions to the legions and to the various cities had been repealed or reversed. This led to grievous insults on Piso, while he as savagely assailed the prince. Piso then resolved to quit Syria. Soon he was detained there by the failing health of Germanicus, but when he heard of his recovery, while people were paying the vows they had offered for his safety, he went, attended by his lictors, drove away the victims placed by the altars with all the preparations for sacrifice and the festal gathering of the populace of Antioch. Then he left for Seleucia and awaited the result of the illness which had again attacked Germanicus. 
the terrible intensity of the malady was increased by the belief that he had been poisoned by Piso, and certainly there were found hidden in the floor and in the walls disinterred remains of human bodies, incantations, and spells, and the name of Germanicus inscribed on leaden tablets, half-burnt cinders smeared with blood, and other horrors by which, in popular belief, souls are devoted to the infernal deities. Piso, too, was accused of sending emissaries to note curiously every unfavourable symptom of the illness. Germanicus heard of all this with anger, no less than with fear. "'If my doors,' he said, "'are to be besieged, if I must gasp out my last breath under my enemy's eyes, what will then be the lot of my most unhappy wife, of my infant children? Poisoning seems tedious. He is in eager haste to have the sole control of the province and the legions. But Germanicus is not yet fallen so low.' nor will the murderer long retain the reward of the fatal deed. He then addressed a letter to Piso, renouncing his friendship, and, as many also state, ordered him to quit the province. Piso, without further delay, weighed anchor, slackening his course that he might not have a long way to return, should Germanicus' death leave Syria open to him. For a brief space the prince's hopes rose. Then his frame became exhausted, and, as his end drew near, he spoke as follows to the friends by his side. Were I succumbing to nature, I should have just ground of complaint even against the gods for thus tearing me away in my youth by an untimely death from parents, children, country. Now, cut off by the wickedness of Piso and Plancina, I leave to your hearts my last entreaties. Describe to my father and brother, torn by what persecutions, entangled by what plots, I have ended by the worst of deaths, the most miserable of lives. If any were touched by my bright prospects, by ties of blood, or even by envy towards me while I lived, they will weep that the once prosperous survivor of so many wars has perished by a woman's treachery. You will have the opportunity of complaint before the Senate, of an appeal to the laws. It is not the chief duty of friends to follow the dead with unprofitable laments, but to remember his wishes, to fulfil his commands. Tears for Germanicus even strangers will shed, Vengeance must come from you if you loved the man more than his fortune. Show the people of Rome her who is the granddaughter of the divine Augustus as well as my consort. Set before them my six children. Sympathy will be on the side of the accusers, and to those who screen themselves under infamous orders, belief or pardon will be refused." his friends clasped the dying man's right hand, and swore that they would sooner lose life than revenge. He then turned to his wife and implored her by the memory of her husband and by their common offspring to lay aside her high spirit, to submit herself to the cruel blows of fortune, 
and not, when she returned to Rome, to enrage by political rivalry those who were stronger than herself. This was said openly, other words were whispered, pointing, it was supposed, to his fears from Tiberius. Soon afterwards he expired to the intense sorrow of the province and of the neighbouring peoples. Foreign nations and kings grieved over him, so great was his courtesy to allies, his humanity to enemies. He inspired reverence alike by look and voice, and while he maintained the greatness and dignity of the highest rank, he had escaped the hatred that waits on arrogance. His funeral, though it lacked the family statues and procession, was honoured by panegyrics and a commemoration of his virtues. Some there were who, as they thought of his beauty, his age, and the manner of his death, the vicinity too of the country where he died, likened his end to that of Alexander the Great. Both had a graceful person and were of noble birth, neither had much exceeded thirty years of age, and both fell by the treachery of their own people in strange lands. But Germanicus was gracious to his friends, temperate in his pleasures, the husband of one wife with only legitimate children. He was, too, no less a warrior, though rashness he had none, and though, after having cowed Germany by his many victories, he was hindered from crushing it into subjection. Had he had the sole control of affairs, had he possessed the power and title of a king, he would have attained military glory as much more easily as he had excelled Alexander in clemency, in self-restraint, and in all other virtues. As to the body which, before it was burnt, lay bare in the forum at Antioch, its destined place of burial, it is doubtful whether it exhibited the marks of poisoning. For men, according as they pitied Germanicus and were prepossessed with suspicion, or were biased by partiality towards Piso, gave conflicting accounts. Then followed a deliberation among the generals and other senators present about the appointment of a governor to Syria. The contest was slight among all but Vibius Marsus and Cnaeus Sentius, between whom there was a long dispute. Finally, Marsus yielded to Sentius as an older and keener competitor. Sentius at once sent to Rome a woman infamous for poisonings in the province and a special favourite of Plancina, Martina by name, on the demand of Vitellius and Veranius and others, who were preparing the charges and the indictment as if a prosecution had already been commenced. Agrippina, meantime, worn out though she was with sorrow and bodily weakness, yet still impatient of everything which might delay her vengeance, embarked with the ashes of Germanicus and with her children, pitied by all. Here, indeed, was a woman of the highest nobility, and but lately, because of her splendid union, wont to be seen amid an admiring and sympathising throng, now bearing in her bosom the mournful relics of death, with an uncertain hope of revenge, with apprehensions for herself, repeatedly at fortune's mercy by reason of the ill-starred fruitfulness of her marriage. 
Piso was at the island of Coos when tidings reached him that Germanicus was dead. He received the news with extravagant joy, slew victims, visited the temples with no moderation in his transports, while Plancina's insolence increased, and she then for the first time exchanged for the gayest attire the mourning she had worn for her lost sister. Centurions streamed in and hinted to Piso that he had the sympathy of the legions at his command. "'Go back,' they said, to the province, which has not been rightfully taken from you, and is still vacant. While he deliberated what he was to do, his son, Marcus Piso, advised speedy return to Rome. As yet, he said, you have not contracted any inexpiable guilt, and you need not dread feeble suspicions or vague rumours. Your strife with Germanicus deserved hatred, perhaps, but not punishment, and by your having been deprived of the province, your enemies have been fully satisfied. But if you return, should Sentius resist you, civil war is begun, and you will not retain on your side the centurions and soldiers, who are powerfully swayed by the yet recent memory of their general, and by a deep-rooted affection for the Caesars. Against this view, Domitius Sella, one of Piso's intimate friends, argued that he ought to profit by the opportunity. It was Piso, not Sentius, who had been appointed to Syria. It was to Piso that the symbols of power and a praetor's jurisdiction and the legions had been given. In case of a hostile menace, who would more rightfully confront it by arms than the man who had received the authority and special commission of a governor? And as for rumours, it is best to leave time in which they may die away. Often the innocent cannot stand against the first burst of unpopularity, but if Piso possesses himself of the army and increases his resources, much which cannot be foreseen will haply turn out in his favour. Are we hastening to reach Italy along with the ashes of Germanicus, that, unheard and undefended, you may be hurried to ruin by the wailings of Agrippina and the first gossip of an ignorant mob? You have on your side the complicity of Augusta and the Emperor's favour, though in secret, and none mourn more ostentatiously over the death of Germanicus than those who most rejoice at it. Without much difficulty, Piso, who was ever ready for violent action, was led into this view. He sent a letter to Tiberius accusing Germanicus of luxury and arrogance, and asserting that, having been driven away to make room for revolution, he had resumed the command of the army in the same loyal spirit in which he had before held it. At the same time he put Domitius on board a trireme with an order to avoid the coast and to push on to Syria through the open sea away from the islands. He formed into regular companies the deserters who flocked to him, armed the camp followers, crossed with his ships to the mainland, intercepted a detachment of new levies on their way to Syria, and wrote word to the petty kings of Cilicia that they were to help him with auxiliaries, 
the young Piso actively assisting in all the business of war, though he had advised against undertaking it. And so they coasted along Lycia and Pamphylia, and on meeting the fleet which conveyed Agrippina, both sides in hot anger, at first armed for battle, and then in mutual fear, confined themselves to revilings, Marcus Vibius telling Piso that he was to go to Rome to defend himself. Piso mockingly replied that he would be there as soon as the praetor, who had to try poisoning cases, had fixed a day for the accused and his prosecutors. Meanwhile Domitius, having landed at Laodicea, a city of Syria, as he was on his way to the winter quarters of the Sixth Legion, which was, he believed, particularly open to revolutionary schemes, was anticipated by its commander Pacuvius. Of this Sentius informed Piso in a letter, and warned him not to disturb the armies by agents of corruption, or the province by war. He gathered round him all whom he knew to cherish the memory of Germanicus, and to be opposed to his enemies, dwelling repeatedly on the greatness of the general, with hints that the state was being threatened with an armed attack, and he put himself at the head of a strong force, prepared for battle. Piso, too, though his first attempts were unsuccessful, did not omit the safest precautions under present circumstances, but occupied a very strongly fortified position in Cilicia, named Selenderis. He had raised to the strength of a legion the Cilician auxiliaries which the petty kings had sent, by mixing with them some deserters, and the lately intercepted recruits, with his own and Plancina's slaves. And he protested that he, though Caesar's legate, was kept out of the province which Caesar had given him, not by the legions, for he had come at their invitation, but by Sentius, who was veiling private animosity under lying charges. Only, he said, stand in battle array, and the soldiers will not fight when they see that Piso, whom they themselves once called father, is the stronger, if right is to decide, if arms is far from powerless. He then deployed his companies before the lines of the fortress on a high and precipitous hill, with the sea surrounding him on every other side. Against him were the veteran troops drawn up in ranks and with reserves, a formidable soldiery on one side, a formidable position on the other. But his men had neither heart nor hope, and only rustic weapons extemporized for sudden use. When they came to fighting, the result was doubtful only while the Roman cohorts were struggling up to level ground. Then the Cilicians turned their backs and shut themselves up within the fortress. Meanwhile Piso vainly attempted an attack on the fleet, which waited at a distance. He then went back, and as he stood before the walls, now smiting his breast, now calling on individual soldiers by name, and luring them on by rewards, sought to excite a mutiny. He had so far roused them that a standard-bearer of the Sixth Legion went over to him with his standard. Thereupon Sentius ordered the horns and trumpets to be sounded, the rampart to be assaulted, 
the scaling ladders to be raised, all the bravest men to mount on them, while others were to discharge from the engines spears, stones, and brands. At last Piso's obstinacy was overcome, and he begged that he might remain in the fortress on surrendering his arms, while the emperor was being consulted about the appointment of a governor to Syria. The proposed terms were refused, and all that was granted him were some ships and a safe return to Rome. There, meantime, when the illness of Germanicus was universally known, and all news, coming as it did from a distance, exaggerated the danger, there was grief and indignation. There was, too, an outburst of complaint. Of course this was the meaning, they said, of banishing him to the ends of the earth, of giving Piso the province. This was the drift of Augusta's secret interviews with Plancina. What elderly men had said of Drusus was perfectly true, that rulers disliked a citizen like temper in their sons, and the young princes had been put out of the way because they had the idea of comprehending in a restored era of freedom the Roman people under equal laws. This popular talk was so stimulated by the news of Germanicus's death that even before the magistrate's proclamation or the senate's resolution there was a voluntary suspension of business. The public courts were deserted, and private houses closed. Everywhere there was a silence broken only by groans. Nothing was arranged for mere effect, and though they refrained not from the emblems of the mourner, they sorrowed yet the more deeply in their hearts. It chanced that some merchants who left Syria while Germanicus was still alive brought more cheering tidings about his health. These were instantly believed, instantly published. Every one passed on to others whom he met, the intelligence, ill-authenticated as it was, and they again to many more, with joyous exaggeration. They ran to and fro through the city, and broke open the doors of the temples. Night assisted their credulity, and amid the darkness confident assertion was comparatively easy nor did Tiberius check the false reports, till by lapse of time they died away. And so the people grieved the more bitterly, as though Germanicus was again lost to them. New honours were devised and decreed, as men were inspired by affection for him or by genius. His name was to be celebrated in the song of the Salii, Chairs of state with oaken garlands over them were to be set up in the places assigned to the priesthood of the Augustales. His image in ivory was to head the procession in the games of the circus. No flamen or augur, except from the Julian family, was to be chosen in the room of Germanicus. Triumphal arches were erected at Rome, on the banks of the Rhine, and on Mount Amenus in Syria, with an inscription recording his achievements, and how he had died in the public service. A cenotaph was raised at Antioch, where the body was burnt, a lofty mound at Epidaphna, where he had ended his life. The number of his statues, or of the places in which they were honoured, could not easily be computed. 
when a golden shield of remarkable size was voted him as a leader among orators, Tiberius declared that he would dedicate to him one of the usual kind, similar to the rest, for in eloquence, he said, there was no distinction of rank, and it was a sufficient glory for him to be classed among ancient writers. The knights called the seats in the theatre known as the juniors Germanicus's benches, and arranged that their squadrons were to ride in procession behind his effigy on the 15th of July. Many of these honours still remain, some were at once dropped or became obsolete with time. While men's sorrow was yet fresh, Germanicus's sister Livia, who was married to Drusus, gave birth to twin sons. This, as a rare event, causing joy even in humble homes, so delighted the emperor that he did not refrain from boasting before the senators that to no Roman of the same rank had twin offspring ever before been born. In fact, he would turn to his own glory every incident, however casual. But at such a time even this brought grief to the people, who thought that the increase of Drusus's family still further depressed the house of Germanicus. That same year the profligacy of women was checked by stringent enactments, and it was provided that no woman whose grandfather, father, or husband had been a Roman knight should get money by prostitution. Vestilia, born of a Praetorian family, had actually published her name with this object on the Aediles list, according to a recognised custom of our ancestors, who considered it a sufficient punishment on unchaste women to have to profess their shame. Titidius Labio, Vistilia's husband, was judicially called on to say why, with a wife whose guilt was manifest, he had neglected to inflict the legal penalty. When he pleaded that the sixty days given for deliberation had not yet expired, it was thought sufficient to decide Vestilia's case, and she was banished out of sight to the island of Seriphus. There was a debate, too, about expelling the Egyptian and Jewish worship, and a resolution of the Senate was passed that four thousand of the freedmen class, who were infected with those superstitions and were of military age, should be transported to the island of Sardinia to quell the brigandage of the place a cheap sacrifice should they die from the pestilential climate. The rest were to quit Italy, unless before a certain day they repudiated their impious rites. Next the emperor brought forward a motion for the election of a vestal virgin in the room of Oxia, who for fifty-seven years had presided with the most immaculate virtue over the vestal worship. He formally thanked Fontius Agrippa and Domitius Pollio for offering their daughters, and so vying with one another in zeal for the commonwealth. Pollio's daughter was preferred, only because her mother had lived with one and the same husband, while Agrippa had impaired the honour of his house by a divorce. The emperor consoled his daughter, passed over though she was, with a dowry of a million sesterces. As the city populace complained of the cruel dearness of corn, he fixed a price for grain to be paid by the purchaser, 
promising himself to add two sesterces on every peck for the traders. But he would not therefore accept the title of Father of the Country, which once before too had been offered him, and he sharply rebuked those who called his work divine, and himself lord. Consequently speech was restricted and perilous under an emperor who feared freedom while he hated sycophancy. I find it stated by some writers and senators of the period that a letter from Adgandestrius, chief of the Chatti, was read in the Senate promising the death of Arminius if poison were sent for the perpetration of the murder, and that the reply was that it was not by secret treachery, but openly and by arms that the people of Rome avenge themselves on their enemies. A noble answer, by which Tiberius sought to liken himself to those generals of old who had forbidden and even denounced the poisoning of King Pyrrhus. Arminius, meanwhile, when the Romans retired and Maruboduus was expelled, found himself opposed in aiming at the throne by his countrymen's independent spirit. He was assailed by armed force, and while fighting with various success, fell by the treachery of his kinsmen. Assuredly, he was the deliverer of Germany, one too who had defied Rome not in her early rise as other kings and generals, but in the height of her empire's glory, had fought indeed indecisive battles, yet in war remained unconquered. He completed thirty-seven years of life, twelve years of power, and he is still a theme of song among barbarous nations, though to Greek historians who admire only their own achievements he is unknown, and to Romans not as famous as he should be, while we extol the past and are indifferent to our own times. End of Book Two Recording by Graham Redmond